People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome to the first episode of the Chantal Baker Show here on Reality Check Radio. It's Friday afternoon, it's four o'clock, and we're kicking into the very first episode of what I hope will become a mainstream, incredible show for you guys. And I thought when I was doing this show, I, I was thinking about what I want to bring to New Zealanders, what is important for me, and it really came down to this whole idea of censorship and the side of the media and the side of what's going on around the world that the media don't show you. So that's what I want this show to be about, about the things that the media don't say here in New Zealand and how can we unpick these amazing international stories that are coming out and make them mainstream here in New Zealand. But I also got thinking, I have grown to, you know, a small amount of popularity, however you see it, here in New Zealand for live streaming. And I think some of the infamous live streams would be during the Parliament protest, where I spent sometimes eight, 12 hours, however long it was, on my phone, talking with you guys, interacting with crowds. But that's a very different scenario when there's so much action happening around you to just sitting here in a studio by yourself, chit-chatting to what seems, you know, pretty much like no one outside of a few interviews. And unlike what you may have heard, I don't really love the sound of my own voice. So I thought I'd bring along someone who I think is an amazing human being, very interesting, and has a slightly different kind of political view to me to help co-host a little bit of what we do and talk us through some of these fantastic, interesting topics that are coming out of other countries around the world. So... I bring to you someone you may not have ever seen before, the wonderful Alistair Harding, my executive producer. Alistair, welcome. Thank you for having me, Chantal. It's really nice to be here and to be working with you on this amazing project. And I can't help but look back on how far we've come since you and I first met and we started working together. It was, if I remember rightly, it, we started working together about a week before the convoy, about before the protests in Wellington. And we met outside the high court where we were covering a case there for the hood. And um, we started working together. And then, of course, about a week later, it didn't doesn't seem that long, we ended up driving down to Wellington 
in the convoy following all of that and then becoming part of New Zealand's greatest ever protest. It was just an incredible experience. And during that time, you and I, um, you were in a camper van and so was I about four camper vans away from each other on the law school car parked, parked, parked legally, I might add. And I think um, it was just incredible working with you during that time. I was there working on my documentary, We Came Here for Freedom, filming it, which is, um, which is the first part is out now and the second part's coming soon. And you, of course, were doing your Facebook living, which was an absolutely incredible journey, which so many people went with you on. And so I just think this is a really special moment for us that we get together on a new radio station, Reality Check Radio, all that time with, that we were in Wellington, we were complaining and discussing and uh, about how the media wasn't doing its job, and now we get the chance to try and put that right. I, su- I suppose so. It's an absolutely amazing opportunity, and thanks for having me on the on the show. It's really amazing, and I we have so treasured working with you and your incredible work with your documentary. Um, we came here for freedom, and the other work that you've done, helping out numerous people from different political groups with amazing videos to just giving people insight into what's really going on here. And your background in the media and journalism has been vital for me to help me understand stories, understand how to unpick stories. So I'm excited. I think you know we're we're a great duo. <laughs> And we'll, we'll have something exciting to bring to the New Zealand public. So hopefully they see it the same way. I think so. Um, and why do you want to do this show? What's, what's your driving? What's your passion behind this one? If we're talking about stories which haven't been talked about in New Zealand or have only been talked about a little bit, why, why do you want to talk about this? It's something that I... I've been wanting people to do here in New Zealand. I've been waiting to find that media myself that was starting to bring out stories we don't hear here. And I'm not talking about kind of the fringe stories. I'm talking more about the fundamental basics of what's happening politically, what's happening geopolitically, like what's going on, what are the movements, what's driving people in these different countries to make the actions that they're making. And so I I wanted to understand that for myself. And so I think a real driving force behind this is just that desire to learn, the desire to understand, and then to help other people understand what's going on here. Because I truly believe that at the end of the day, the more educated you are, the more you understand kind of the systems and the forces that work behind media, work behind political parties, and you can really start to almost see things as they're unraveling and go, oh, okay, that's that's that thing in practice, that's this thing in practice, and it makes you a more educated and, and kind of have a bit more interesting perspectives on the world. So that's really what I'm excited about doing here, just helping people feel more educated and informed. One thing for me about all of this is that ever since... I, I call this period, these last three years, the madness. And over those three years, I've been watching around the world. I remember very early on when we went into the very first lockdown and watching a protest at Trafalgar Square. There were tens of thousands of people. I was talking to someone recently who was there and she was of the opinion there were about 50,000 people there filling up Trafalgar Square and there were choppers going overhead and there were policemen everywhere. And, and then the person I was talking to actually was from a monastery near Hyde Park, opposite um, the speaker's corner there. And she said that they had gone out onto the street to watch these people going past. 
and usually a protest would take about 10 minutes to follow to sorry to walk past that monastery but on this particular day all of those protesters walking past it took them over two hours and so to me that's one of the reasons why i want to talk about all of this is because these things have been happening for the last three years and our media have not been showing it they have not been telling us about it and i i look at it and i think this is probably the biggest protest movement in history and uh you know when we start talking about these stories today you know our first story that we're going to talk about is exactly that what's what's been happening in france over the last few weeks and when you look in the in our new zealand media it hardly gets shown at all so i think that this is a wonderful opportunity for us to actually talk about these things and you know actually look at them through the eyes of of people overseas and and tell new zealanders about them i think it's a wonderful opportunity we have here so this is this is great i'm really looking forward to this journey that we're going on that is incredible i love i love that alistair and you're so right it's this is there is so many movements that happen internationally you know the um the iraqis standing up against war in their own country just for america to completely blindside them and even tony blair as well who was the uk's prime minister at the time advocating for that war and jacinda trained jacinda arduna you know infamous prime minister trained under him so there's all these these moves that happen and the media choose which stories to suppress and which stories to push and so it'll be fun deep diving into these stories that they look to suppress and getting into the nitty-gritty of the why and who's driving it so should we get into it let's go let's go so let's get stuck in um europe is burning what's been going on in france Chantel? europe is burning and for people that have followed french politics for a while you know that the french do love to protest but what it seems like that's been happening lately is it's escalated on a scale that we've never seen before. Now, what's happened recently is President Macron, he decided that he was going to push through legislation to raise the pension age without a vote. So people in France have lost it. They have been protesting in what's estimated to be over a million people out in the streets, including trade unions and socialist unions have been hitting the streets, demanding that he roll back this legislation. They've even had two votes now of no confidence in President Macron. Both of those have failed. So now that both of those have failed, it looks like this legislation will be going through. And Alistair, what is your take on this? Because I know you've been looking into a little bit of who these protesters are and the impact that it's having on the kind of the wider Paris region as well. Yeah, to me, when you when you look at all of these these protests, you know, we're seeing videos coming through sporadically, um, and then you start looking in the media. One of the the biggest things that you notice are photographs of the streets of Paris. And you see two things. Number one, you see people protesting at night, burning things, throwing things, clashing with the riot police, all of those different things. And then the other thing that you see a lot of is trash building up on the streets. And, uh, you know, this is this is the trade unions getting involved. And I suppose, you know, that's what happens when you protest in France is you know, you go back to the Yellow Vest Revolution of 2018. <coughs> Excuse me. You go back to the Yellow Vest Revolution of 2018. Um, it was the same sort of thing. These protests are massive. 
And it's incredible to me that you don't see too much of them in the media. A couple of points here that I've noticed, you know, in, in France, retirees are paid 50% of their income with a ma at a maximum of 41,000 euros per year. I'm guessing that is. Um, and when this these laws that they're talking about, these pension laws, the first time they came into effect was in 1910, when life expectancy was 51.3 years, whereas now it's 82.4 years old. Um, also, the population has increased exponentially since 1910 and now stands at around 65 million compared to 39 million in, in 1910. And as we were discussing this before the show, you came up with some very interesting ideas about perhaps... Um, why this is happening is that the French government has been pushed into doing this because of those figures growing and also birth rates decreasing you were talking about. And I thought that was a really interesting point to make. I've, I've looked into the French birth rates before. So to me, it was something that stood out immediately. The minute you try to raise the pension age, it's telling us a few things. A, the state of your economy is in failure, hence why you're making decisions that you know will be vastly unpopular because you have an aging population in France and you have had an aging population for many, many years. And so the minute that I heard that, oh, they're raising the pension age, I thought, oof, those birth rates will really be suffering. And so I started to research a little bit more and get the up-to-date birth rates. This is the real issue. If you do not have enough children being born into your society, then you don't have workers coming into the workforce to then sustain people that are coming out of the workforce. It's a problem all around the West. It's a problem here in New Zealand. I actually went to listen to a talk that Don Brash gave a few years ago. Was it Don Brash or someone else? But we, we, we discussed this at one stage. The birth rates of our country are a real problem here in New Zealand. They're a problem in France. And for example, back in 2000, they had a birth rate of 2.1%. So that means 2.1 children per family in France. Now, the reason you need a birth rate of at least 2.1 is because that's sustaining the people that are exiting the workforce. Their current birth rate is down to only 1.7. 1.7. So they do not have enough children being born in France to sustain the pensioners they've already got. And what this is going to mean is their healthcare system is not going to be able to be sustainable because as people get older, more people rely on healthcare. If you don't have these young workers working and earning tax and that going being able to be recycled back into the healthcare system, you're going to have big gaps in your funding for healthcare as well. So the birth rate really impacts every single aspect of French life. And that's something that the West has not been talking about. We've actively been discouraging people from having children, saying we need to lower the population rates when actually the opposite is true. We need more children, particularly if we want to enact initiatives that are going to be, you know, green and sustainable. All of those initiatives take more money. So if we've got less money coming into the into the economy, we're not going to be able to enact the measures that these younger kids want because they've been told that these measures are going to be great for them. So it's a real problem what's happening in France. And this is actually a direct quote from President Macron. He said, if we don't enact these reforms, the current system is in danger. Adding that the new plans would ensure that France's pension system remains financially viable for decades to come. Now that's concerning because if you take that decades to come, he's saying that they don't even have a viable system over the next decade or over the next two decades. He's worried that they're going to collapse within that time or potentially collapse 
within that time. So they, as you said, the life expectancy has shot up, but that also means, again, there's more pressure on the healthcare system, more pressure financially. So I'm really fascinated to see what France manages to do. And some of the leading people that are protesting against this are more left-wing, are more socialist-based. And so the issue is, once you give people something for free, it's very hard to roll that back without severe repercussions. And that's exactly what the French are dealing with at the moment. Yeah, and you know, when you talk about it like that, you realize that Macron probably has a point. Um, but the way he's going about it is, is quite incredible, really. He's, he's trying to push something through without any vote. That means he's, he's just trying to rule by decree. And I find that really interesting. There's a quote that, that I saw that jumped out at me and from NBC News in the United States. And uh, it's from a 16-year-old young man from France, um, I won't attempt to pronounce his name. He said, we are here to show that we support the movement against the pension reform of the people and that we are all against that kind of system of democracy where you can pass a law without a vote and that we advocate a better democracy, he said. And I think that's where it comes down to is that um, we have been dealing with very um, high-handed forms of government all over the world for the last three years. And this is where it's coming to. Um, and we're also seeing this where we're also seeing this with the Dutch farmers, weren't we? And you know, that leads us into the next topic that we're going to talk about. And this is something also that you experienced directly yourself when you were over in Europe last year. Yep, absolutely. One topic that I really want to help educate people on here in New Zealand is what's really going on in the Netherlands and with the Netherlands farms and with the carbon tax that they're trying to enact over in the Netherlands. So we're going to get into all of that and more. But first, we're going to take a break for you to listen to a few amazing bits of music. And then we're going to come right back and get you informed on what's going on in the Netherlands. You're listening to The Chantal Baker Show and this is Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. The touch of yours is what I've been looking for. When you say my name, I just wanna feel you more. I try to read your book, but it's too complicated. And I can't know how you feel. Damn, I hate it. Yours is what I've been looking for. 
wanna feel you more I tried to read your book But it's too complicated And I can't know how you feel Damn, I hate it information the reality check has arrived rcr reality check radio i don't want to end up in a hospital room holding nobody's hand i don't want to end up drunk alone on a roof wanting what i don't have I don't wanna end up looking back on my birthdays like they're random Thursdays, no I don't wanna end up like that I want a life that's bigger than all the love Cause I wanna buy for my friends a life that's bigger than Every person who ever told me I can't I'll look back and wanna be remembered for what I did Every time that I speak, have everyone listen I wanna be my own boss so I don't feel so lost And be more ambitious I wanna learn how to love whoever I want Like it's nobody's business, yeah I wanna end up like that I wanna
RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to the Chantal Baker Show. This is Reality Check Radio. Now, we've just been kicking off a conversation, myself and my executive producer, Alistair Harding, about what's really happening in Europe. And the next thing that I would really like to talk to you guys about is the recent Netherlands elections. Now, as a few of you may know, if you follow our social medias, I've actually been in the Netherlands uh, back in November. I stayed with a local politician who's in local body politics. I met many of the farmers. I went to a huge farmers event that was, to be honest, absolutely fantastic. And so I have been closely following what's happened over in the Netherlands. And it is an incredible story of perseverance, of dedication, of not being bullied by the government, and of really standing up for their fundamental rights to survive as individuals, particularly for the farming industry in the Netherlands to survive. So what's recently happened in a landslide shock there have there's been a party called the Farmers Citizens Movement, and it's called BBB. It's got some big Dutch name that I can't pronounce well, so I won't butcher it for the poor people. But they have won 17 seats in the Senate, which makes them the majority party in the Senate over in the Netherlands, which has only 75 seats in it. So Parliament is an uproar. It's been fantastic for the farmers. It's a really shocking win. And it's going to be interesting to see how they manage to lay out the policies they find important in any future coalition. So because they've got the majority seats, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will get a coalition because the current president, Mark Root, he may, sorry, current prime minister, he may choose to go with uh, the left-leaning side of parliament and create a coalition that way, although it would be very surprising given that he's more of a conservative. So at the moment, it seems like he may have to work with the Farmers Citizens Party and they will be a very interesting coalition considering he was the one to bring in this initial uh, nitrogens tax, which was going to see many, many farmers lose their farms. They were going to be forcibly sold out to the government and they were going to lose a lot of their livestock. They were going to have to murder their own livestock. So it's been an absolute uproar and I'm really excited for them. This was an incredible story all of last year. Eh? We, we, we watched all of the protests all over um, through the videos and through the, the photographs that we saw. Um, trucks jamming up the motorways, um, the the Dutch farmers hanging. They did all sorts of interesting things, didn't they? Like hanging their flags upside down and and wearing um, wearing red bandanas and all of that. And one 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 thing that I remember that that I remember about this is that the global media didn't really talk about it much at all, and it was a very frustrating thing for us who were following it. And I find it really funny now when I look at the the Guardian newspaper, which is one of the one of the core um, elite news organizations around the world. And uh, there's a quote in one of their stories about this, saying, "Symbolized by a Dutch flag hanging up hanging upside down, the BBB has drawn global attention, with farmers protests blockading highways, dumping manure on roads, and rallying outside politicians' houses." And then they say, extensively covered by the international media. Do you know what I love? Do you know what cracks me up so much about that story? They haven't even got the flag thing right. <laughs> because it's not the BBB, um, which is the Farmer Citizen Movement. It's, so that is one party. Now, there are many 
many parties in the Netherlands. They're usually made up of a majority of smaller parties. There were many parties that supported the farmers and they were all hanging their flags upside down. So it's not this one political group was hanging the flags upside down. That's absolutely false. It was every single person that agreed with farmers, no matter which political party they were part of, would hang their flags upside down, would wear the red bandana as a show of support, all of these people were doing that, regardless of the political group. So that's not even, you can tell they really didn't follow this story closely or else they would also know that. So this is one of the, the key things I think with media is they like to think they're ahead of something the minute it gets popular. And that's what we've seen them do here. But what was really amazing is the minute that we landed kind of in the Netherlands, you started to see these red bandanas. And particularly when we went out, um, because we went to an area which is Friesland. So there's many farmers out there and nearly every second car had a bandana, had some kind of red flag, had the flags upside down, they had signs in support. And I mean, you're talking huge companies were showing their support as well. So Fonterra in the Netherlands, they were hanging the signs outside of their massive company there, which was a really amazing sight to see that there was all these huge corporations that were also supporting the farmers because they understand that if the farmers go under or if this legislation does get pushed through, that so many farmers would lose their land, would lose their farms, that it would not be worth being in business anymore. And when, when we talked with one of the farmers, I remember one of them had these beautiful Jersey dairy cows and we did an interview and the cows are surrounding me and they're jumping on top of each other and they're playing around and they were so inquisitive and gorgeous cows, so beautifully looked after. And the fields in the Netherlands are some of the best producing fields in the world and they have very small herd numbers in the Netherlands. So to a Netherlands farmer, having 150 or 200 cows is considered a large herd. Now here in New Zealand, we can have hundreds and hundreds of cows and it's not really that large. We could have a few thousand, you know, these kind of numbers are thrown around here. Whereas over in the Netherlands, 150 cows, you've got a pretty massive farm on your hands. So these cows are looked after very well. They have a lot of room. They're really well fed. And so this concept that I've seen some journalists putting out of, you know, these cows are over, um, over farmed and they're kept in terrible conditions, false. It's just false narratives that they're putting out there to try and justify the government telling these farmers that they would need to kill 50% of their stock to fall within their so-called emissions targets. So this election victory, is that going to put a stop to that, do you think? Well, it'll make it very difficult for Mark Root to push through that legislation because he might have to go into an active coalition with the farmers. But what you may find is because the farmers coalition, sorry, the farmers movement is made up of predominantly everyday people. It's not people that are really slick. It's not people that necessarily have much of a legal background, anything like that. So it'll be fascinating to see if they get their goals achieved with just a majority or how they manage to build out their support around them um, internally. I think their support, like even, even little things such as your assistants, such as the people giving you advice, if you get a whole lot of government people coming to you to offer you that advice and then you hire them, you may find that they get a little bit more manipulated than what their initial goals are. And so it'll be interesting over the next few years to watch closely as that plays out and find out can everyday people really win a majority and change things or will they simply get manipulated by people that are kind of already inside the system. So I'm fascinated to see how they manage to do. And I know you've got an interview coming up about this and we should probably get into that. Um, but one last thing that I want to talk about with this is that I find very interesting is that um, the Dutch 
are a big farming nation and so are we and they've just had an election and we've got an election coming up this year as well and i wonder whether there are parallels to be drawn about what happened there and what might happen here as well i personally do not think so for the farming community here in new zealand and the reason i don't think so is this when you are in the netherlands and actually we went to ukraine as well and i see similarities between those two countries in terms of the determination of the people you had these young ukrainian 17 year olds saying that they're going to go to war and sacrifice themselves to protect their land you had the dutch farmers saying they were going to go to war against the government you know theoretically go to war so to speak sorry go to war in terms of they were willing to shut down airports they were willing to protest and shut down whole supermarkets the delivery of supplies to supermarkets they shut down massive motorways for weeks on end they would protest and they did not give up and they got their message out there and they fought every step of the way and everyone was united and it was this really incredible organic strong movement the farmers that go and protest here in New Zealand, they go, oh, I, I went there and I, I went to the side of the road so everyone could easily pass me and I just waited there and, and you know, I didn't really do that much and, and now I feel like I've kind of I've got somewhere and they'll do their one protest a year and then sit back and I understand because farming is very difficult to do. It's really difficult to try and keep the farm running if you're off protesting. I completely understand why they take that road but I think New Zealanders are so passive the Netherlands farmers have not been passive and it's won them a huge, a huge victory. Whereas here in New Zealand, I remember talking to the head of one of the big farmers groups and he said, oh, you know, we won't join in on this one big particular protest that was happening in New Zealand because we're going to stage our own. It's going to be great and it's going to go if it needs to for months and, and none of that ended up happening. And I think here in New Zealand, there's a real lack of fight amongst the farmers here. They'd kind of just go, oh, well, I'll just sell to carbon or I'll kind of give up. There's a few fighters, but they haven't really made themselves vocal anywhere near on the scale as the Netherlands farmers. And I'm I'm concerned for them because I'm passionate about farmers. Um, I'm passionate about farmers being sustainable and getting ahead. I'm passionate about them staying alive because the mental health of farmers in our country is one of the most affected uh, groups of people, particularly in men. So it's just an area that I really, really want to see thrive. I want to see them succeed seed but if they take anything from the Netherlands win it's that they're going to probably need to do a lot more to try and get ahead than what they've currently been doing at the moment and that's just from seeing the success in either country I mean here Jacinda Ardern wouldn't even um, wouldn't even honor her meeting she said she'd give one of the farming groups so she couldn't even honor one meeting and yet over there the farmers are winning the majority I think that kind of tells you a lot about the impact of these two sides there's also another thing about it too that what the dutch farmers were facing was imminent it was happening it is happening isn't it there are farmers being forced off their land and it is still more of a um, it's still more of an idea here in new zealand they're still talking through it i think as as it gets closer and farmers start to realize just how dangerous the talk is that's going on inside those parliament buildings we're probably going to see a little bit of panic set in, perhaps. I think a big, a big telling sign will be the Resource Management Act that the government are currently trying to push through and blindside everybody with. Now, they went to push through this back in December 
And they always do this right before um, parliament breaks for the year. They rush through a whole lot of legislation, hoping that all the MPs are tired and people just kind of go, oh, all that parliament isn't all there. And they often rush it through under urgency. So no one has a lot of time to check all of these bills. They don't have their full teams given weeks on end to make sure they can go through it all in detail. Now, the Resource Management Act was 1,800 pages long, and it's all about co-governance for every piece of land in New Zealand. And so this is the problem is that we're looking at an, a potentially a huge land grab here in New Zealand. This is just a potential based on what this legislation may mean in the future. And so it's very, very scary what they're looking at doing here when it comes to co-governance with land. Now, our media here are talking about three waters and the co-governance of the water, but they're ignoring the co-governance of the land. And this could directly affect farmers that do own large portions of land up and down the country. Now in the Netherlands, when we went to leave, I think it was about November, when we went to leave the Netherlands, there were only meant to be 600 farms being kind of forcibly taken by the government. Yes, they were paying for people, but people did not want to get off their land. So I call it forcibly taking that land. And then by the time it was a few months down the track, that had escalated to 3,000 farms and the kill off of potentially 50% of their stock. These farmers wow. love their stock. Yeah, it was not gonna it was not gonna go down. And so I think that we may not start to see that same level of pushback here in New Zealand until people realize uh, that they're trying to push through similar objectives here. So it's kind of a wait and see game. What legislation will they try and do here? What won't they try and do? But we've already had similar land grabs when it comes to significant natural areas where farmers were designated massive portions of their farms as significantly natural if they've planted out native trees that they've planted. And so what that means is that then that land can no longer be farmed ever again so they and they don't get any money for it so the government essentially just goes mine and there's nothing you can do so it's a really yes, scary future for our farmers here and i actually have a friend who that's that's happened to who lives nearby us here and um in the central north island and it's a really scary prospect because um there's not much they can do about it really they um they either sell up at a at a loss or they lump it and and, and, and they just have to live with it. Um, but having said that, we, we do need to get on to your interview and um, hopefully we find out a little bit about um, how the farmers dealt with that so that when it does come our way, some of our farmer listeners um, will know what to do. All right, everybody, you're listening to Reality Check Radio, and this is the Chantal Baker Show. Today, we are talking with the incredible Angela, who is over in the Netherlands. She's been working closely with the farmers and the big protests that have been happening over there, and she's also running in politics as well. So, Angela, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> So can you explain to people listening at home that don't have much understanding, can you give them a rough rundown of what's happened in the Netherlands over the last six months? Uh, over the last six months, um, basically it was focused on our farmers because um, our government just wants to get rid of our farmers uh, and because they want their farmer ground. They want to build houses and um, I guess we all know the plans, what uh, uh, what the government wants. They want to make a tri-state city of the Netherlands, one big city. And therefore, the farmers have to um, go because they own much of the land over here. 
And therefore, they use the card of uh, the climate change and nitrogen. And um, yeah, the farmers, uh, I guess the Dutch farmers are the biggest threat to the whole future of this world because of the cows and the nitrogen. So yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, So they uh, discover or they come with all kinds of rules that the farmers have to go. And somehow nitrogen uh, has also been um, a way of treating things like a coin. If a farmer goes, then the nitrogen, uh, the part that the uh, farmer can use for nitrogen, they can sell it or give it to some uh, other company. Like, for instance, Tata Steel is a very big company over here, very polluting, but they can nitrogen, um, uh, I don't know, um, uh, extra nitrogen, so they can pollute more with nitrogen or a big um, company that makes products from uh, cows, milks, cheese, etc. And they buy the nitrogen um, pollution from farms so they can even grow bigger. So, yeah, maybe that's a complex story, but um, our government is doing whatever they can to get rid of the farmers. Um, They try it politely and they become more and more aggressively. And uh, the farmers have been protesting because their future and not their future, but everybody's future uh, depends on that. Uh, the government is not listening. They say, okay, we want to go uh, discuss with you uh, and and see if we can come to some agreement. But the only agreement is that the farmers have to go. So the farmers did a lot of protesting. That didn't help. And the only thing that the farmers could see on a peaceful way was to vote our corrupt government out. So uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, a big um, campaign has started, vote them out, because last week on March 15th, uh, we had our uh, elections from the province. And that was a way um, if the coalition, the government, um, um, got voted out and the opposition got more votes, um, that is a chance that the plans of a government won't go through. So it was very important, important to vote them out. Big campaign uh, everywhere, posters, and a huge rally on March 11. Um, and it worked because uh, the opposition uh, did win. And now there is a big, the government, um, uh, the coalition that is governing our company, of uh, our country, is panicking because uh, the Dutch people have given a big sign that we all stand behind our farmers. There's only one thing. Uh, they voted for the BBB, that's the party uh, says, uh, saying uh, for the farmers. Um and it's not 100% clear if it's truly a victory for the farmers. So because, who are the people that are behind BBB? Because I know when I was over in the Netherlands, um, the upside-down farmers' flags and the red bandanas, they weren't for necessarily the BBB party. It was just people that stood in solidarity with the farmers. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was who runs the BBB party, and how are they different to some of the other groups, um, such as the farmers we met, like Ninka Koopmans? How are they different to some of those parties that these farmers are involved in? Um, yeah, those um, the BBB is a political party. So the par- uh, the groups from Ninka, that's also uh, uh, farmer groups. Um, but Ninka is also part of uh, a political party. Uh, and that is also very pro-farmers. Uh, and the BBB also says it's pro-farmers. But the difference between the party from Ninka, uh, the uh, BFE and L, or the Forum for De- uh, Democracy, uh, they are really against the government and they want all the plans of the nitrogen uh, to be stopped because there is no nitrogen problem. It's only a government problem. Um, and the BBB, uh, it's a party that is uh, for the farmers and also a lot of farmers are part of it. Um, they don't uh, deny the nitrogen problem. They um, uh, want to go in contact with our government and to say um, uh, it doesn't have to stop in uh, 2030, but give more time to 2035. So they are pro-farmers, but I'm not sure if they are actually the right party. So it's a big win for the farmers and for the Netherlands that the uh, people voted uh, the government out and voted for a party pro-farmers. But I'm not 100% sure if this party is actually going to do what we hope they will. So do they have, I mean, they they won, what was it, 17 seats, is that right? So do they have enough good candidates for those 17 seats or are they a lot smaller and they didn't even realise that they would have to find 17 candidates? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, right, they were uh, really small, really small, and they um, massively did win. So um, they don't have enough uh, good candidates for that, um, and that is uh, that depends on um, what they are going to do. Are they, are they going to take people from other? Uh, parties like the VVD, Syria, which are part of the government that we wanted to go out. So if they do that, it's not a good sign. Um, although some of those parties, uh, people from those parties all over the um, regions, um, do not stand behind their own party anymore. Um, and besides that, um, I've heard from the farmers that there are a lot of good farmers getting ready to be active in that party. Mm-hmm. So um, we have to see what happens because just like you say, um, it's not clear if they have enough good uh, party members and if they have the right party members. So from what I can understand, it means that the BBB party now control the Senate, but who controls the House? Does that work in a similar way to kind of American-style politics, or how does your entire parliament, like the setup of your parliament, how is that in operation, and who kind of controls each faction? Oh, that's, that's uh, I was never into politics. <laughs> um, but it is, we have... Um, um, the first chamber, 
those are the the uh, ones that um that's the coalition they make all the rules and all the decisions and they're heading more towards a dictatorship like um in a lot of other countries and then we have uh the uh, the first house and um um the members of those first house are chosen uh, based on the elections that we just had from the provinces. So the people that were chosen from the provinces, um, yeah, they make, um, um, yeah, they can control the coalition. So they have more power. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit unclear because uh, we have the coalition who's ruling and then we have the second room, um, uh, as we call it, uh, and they have to listen to each other. But our current government doesn't listen to anybody. Even if the second room votes no, the coalition and the rulers uh, have to listen to them, but they don't. Why do they not Why do they not legally have to listen to them? How are they getting away and around that? <laughs> uh, I want to say, uh, I don't know. And that's exactly their answer. Like, um, yeah, I, I have uh, I have no uh, um, memory of it. Like our Prime Minister uh, Rutte is doing whatever he does. And when people call him uh, and say, you, you cannot do that, they're like, oh, no, I don't know. So um, they just go ahead like, like uh, dictators. And they come with, they don't, you cannot discuss with them on content only on uh, they attack on emotions or or whatever so they just go ahead you can so do what whatever is, what, you are, want. what are some of the legislation that he's put through that hasn't gone through the proper process or that the senate or whoever has declined but they've still pushed through what are some of that legislation uh the cbdc also central bank digital currency yeah yeah Interesting. So they pushed that through even though it was voted against. Yeah. Mm. Oops, it was decided in uh, Belgium in uh, uh, the European Parliament. Oops, sorry. So is that being rolled out across all of Europe? I guess so. But that's also very um, powerful of them. They are silent about it. They don't tell which legislations they um uh, pass they are silent on it and the mass uh, the mainstream media is is just like in every country so it's it's a game they play everywhere the mainstream media is also silent and we uh, the people that are awake trying to wake up people like look what's happening look look what's happening just also with the corona measurements we said, oh, if these um, uh, measurements, if it's accepted and the rules are accepted, we never get rid of it. And the people, uh, even my family was saying like, no, 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 that's just a conspiracy. But now it's permanent. So they can, whatever um, pandemic comes along, uh, they can do whatever they want again. 
So how are people feeling on the ground now? Are the farmers excited? Is there still a bit of caution? Like what is the entire feeling that you're getting when you're going to store the movements and some of the events, things like that? What has been the feedback that people are giving you? Uh, mixed. The farmers are very happy and not all farmers. Uh, the people, um, uh, most of the people are just happy, like, yes, we did it. Uh, the uh, We got the biggest p- uh, party. Um, but the people that are really awake and know what's happening, they are really um, cautious, like, mm, let's see what happens. We don't know if it's the right party. But that's just a smaller group. So a lot of people voted for the BBB because a lot of farmers had their uh, signs and posters uh, along the highway and near the flags. So people that uh, really felt um, they wanted to support the farmers just thought, okay, I have to vote that party and didn't look elsewhere. Because the other opposition, like the BVNL Forum for Democracy, are still considered to be parties for the conspiracy theorist, uh, extreme right. Um, and um, yeah, most of the people... Do you, do you agree with that? Do you agree with how they uh, are said to be far right? Do you think that that's accurate or do you think that that's not an accurate description? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, um, um, they just... I guess they just switch far right is left and uh, left is right. And there was a a very nice interview a few weeks ago of two uh, people, one from Ongehoord Nederland, O.N. Uh, He's making on the mainstream media the alternative sound and Max from Café Weltschmerz. Uh, They are also considered far right um, um, alternative media. And they had a very great conversation about it. And they said, I always considered myself to be left. And we were um, uh, going to rallies and organizing rallies in the 80s. And I don't know what happened. And now we are far right. So it is not far right. It's just a way. uh, It's just like in the US. They just, because you don't go with the narrative you are far right but they are everything except far right you think they've just uh, renamed classic liberal to be far uh, right? uh, what did you say you think they've just renamed the classic liberal voter as far right yes yes because i i was uh, uh, a liberal i always was left and, and to be honest, um, I guess five, six years ago uh, with the elections, I had a big fight with my brother because he voted Forum for Democracy. And now I had to apologize because I, I felt he was uh, far right. And now I did the same because, and I was always left. <laughs> I'm still, I didn't change, but their definition changed. A a very similar thing seems to be happening in a number of countries. And a a final wrap-up question, Angela. What what do you think were some of the main key things that BBB did that made them so successful when it came to voter turnout? Do you think that it helped having 
farmers in the name and just having something recognisable in the name of the party as well? Or do you just think it was purely the farmers putting signs up on the side of the road? Because here in New Zealand, we have our elections coming up in October. And a lot of farmers here are really upset with some of the legislation that our government is pushing through. So if you were mm-hmm. to give them any advice about how to go about running a, a, a successful campaign, what do you think are some of the key features that BBB did that could, could translate into New Zealand as well? Um, uh, for sure, the name uh, and uh, their front woman, she is not a typical politician. She's just a very normal woman talking normal talk and um, um, not aggressive when she doesn't agree. She's still neat, but she um, says says it like it is. She doesn't use... Um, difficult words she's just she looks like a farm she acts like a farmer and um um she acts and and uh and just like one of them and i guess that is very very important um be like them yeah and uh, show it Do you think the large protests had a real impact on voter turnout in terms of people understanding the pressure that the farmers have been under? Yes, yes, I think so. Uh, the protest, um, we had a big rally in The Hague um, and we did a lot of uh, campaigning, vote them out, vote them out, vote them out. And um, the outcome to this um election was higher than four years uh, before. And that is actually very special because also what you see in the movements and that there are a lot of people that don't believe in the government anymore and believe um, there's a whole new uh, movement here. Uh, Don't vote. Be um, um, so friends so don't vote keep your fo- give your power to uh, the government so a lot of people didn't vote because they don't believe in the government so um yeah do you, I guess that, the, do you think that that's a dangerous outlook, though, to not vote and just, you know, because you're just handing votes to the people that are definitely going to turn up, which is often the people that are more left wing, they'll, you know, or the radical, I say the radical left now, because I, I mean, I would have classed myself as a typical liberal. And so now I just think you've got this <laughs> radical side, um, which has a very extreme agenda that most people, if they understood it, would not be comfortable with, but they seem to definitely turn up. And so by not showing up to vote, you're just giving those votes straight to that radical side? Yes, yes. I was monitoring the elections here in my uh, destruction and I could see that there are still a lot of left votes and the people that think alike, uh, a lot of them didn't show up. And mm. it's, yeah, their argument is, I don't want to give my power to the government but they did. They just gave their vote to to the left wing. Mm. So, yeah, it's. I don't understand. I do understand, but it's um, um, when the masses don't vote, then it's effective. But this is just an in between, and when it's in between, not voting is giving your vote to the other party. Mm. Yeah. 
I always say to people, I'm like, you can't sit and talk online about how terrible the government is or go to a protest if you don't turn out to vote. I'm not interested in what you have to say. I'm actually not. Because <laughs> if you can't yeah. even if you can't even get up off the couch and go and vote, then why on earth should I listen to what you have to say online or anywhere else? Because it's completely irrelevant because all you are is a complete sideliner. So that's that's my personal take on it. I've got no time for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Vote for yeah. someone, vote for anyone, but, you know, do yeah. a little bit of research. But at the same time, if you don't yeah. turn up to vote, but you expect me to listen to you, not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But that is that is um, the whole movement of sovereignty and common law is growing massively so it's not i'm not interested in voting or blah 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 but it's growing massively and and yeah then you can have discussions i had discussions like uh what you said but they say no i'm not gonna give this is my fight so i don't believe in it i believe in now we still have that corrupt government and we have to get rid of them. And uh, it only helps if you vote them out. Exactly. Yeah. You can only get rid of corruption if you actually show up to the voting booth. Outside of that, sitting at home talking about common law from your couch isn't really going to do anything, is it? All right. Hey, Angela, yes. thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Your insight into what's been happening in the Netherlands has been fantastic. And I hope you have a great day. We'll stay in touch and keep me informed with any updates that's happening with BBB and the Future Coalition, because we'd love to keep people here updated. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. We are going to take a break for you to listen to some music. And when we come back, we're going to be informing you on the level of censorship that has been happening, not only in the States, but that affects the entire world. And no surprise, it is government sponsored. All right, everyone, have a fantastic short break and we'll be with you soon. This is the Chantal Baker Show, and you're listening to Reality Check Radio. Today on RCR Radio, Paul Brennan, Peter Williams, Chantal Baker, Rodney Hyde, and Jaspreet Prosperi. Committed to fair debate and honest information, the reality, check. the reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. All Oh, your hands, baby. 
never mind, never mind. Never mind, never mind. What if I left and it made no sense? And you tell your friends and they fall your hands, baby. Never mind, never mind. Never mind, never mind. What if I left and it made no sense? And you tell your friends and they fall your hands, baby. Never mind, never mind. Never mind, never mind. What if I left and it made no sense? And you tell your friends and they fall your hands, baby. Never mind, never mind.
to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. And you've just heard some fantastic interviews and bits of insight about what's happening over in the Netherlands with the Netherlands farmers and the massive citizen movement win in the parliament. So it's very exciting times for the Netherlands. Something else that I really feel like we need to talk about before the show wraps up is what is happening with the level of censorship that we are seeing online And at the beginning of all the lockdowns, of all of that craziness, it kind of felt like there was a lot of information that was being presented to us in lockstep. It felt like it was all happening simultaneously. It didn't really feel like a natural reaction to an extreme situation that was happening around the world. So we're going to unpack a little bit about why it may have felt like that and who's kind of pulling some of these strings when it comes to censorship. Are they censoring the truth? Or are they censoring what they don't want you to know? Let's kick in to the Vitality Project. The Virality Project. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I remember this one very clearly, Chantal, very early on, going through the first lockdown and just looking at this and thinking, how is this happening? And uh, and making all sorts of comments about, you know, how the media was was in lockstep. And it was really obvious to, to some of us who saw it at that time. And I remember someone very close to me saying, oh, don't be stupid. How on earth could they get everybody to say the same things at the same time? And this is how they did it. This this is it. We're looking at it right now. Matt Taibbi came out with the latest Twitter files. This is Twitter files number 19. There's a lot of information that's come out from this. And uh, this latest one is the Stanford University Virality Project. So this is just one of many that is doing this. And what they're doing is they are censoring information that is coming through. And the most, the, the, the strangest, the most egregious thing out of all of this is that they're actually even going after uh, information that is true. And they're open about it as well. I find it absolutely extraordinary. Well, I would say that it's not that they're, they're also going after information that's true. It's that they're mainly going after information that's true. You know, when I read those Twitter files, when I read the information that they were censoring, they're not looking for information that they say is actually false. It's all stuff that we now know to be true. (laughs) So they're calling it false. They're saying it needs to be censored. But this is active and true information that the public needed to have. And unfortunately, there's a big censorship machine um, in the Virality Project, which did work with government agencies, it worked with the FBI, it worked with multiple organisations around the world to make sure that you didn't know the truth. And that's what's really terrifying. And the thing about that, you know, the truth, is that the whole reason that they were talking about that was because they wanted to stop what they call vaccine hesitancy. And we now know that there are dangers with those those injections. Mm-hmm. And to think that, you know, we're talking about people, if, if we're stopping stories that, that fuel vaccine hesitancy, we're actually condemning people to getting hurt by these things. And no matter how, I mean, they're, they're trying to inject the entire world with them. So there are going to be people that get hurt. And I find this um, not just extraordinary, but also really um, very frightening that this could happen. 
Yeah. I want to read you a short breakdown of the Twitter files just so that people listening at home can really get like a a bite-sized understanding of it. So this is a a quick debrief by the New York Post. And it said Taibbi, who's Matt Taibbi, Schellenberger, Barry Weiss and other reporters partnered with new Twitter owner Elon Musk and began publishing the Twitter files, which are internal documents and communications which detailed how the social media giant's previous management team sought to silence controversial voices and suppress news items such as the post reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, some of you may know, but right before the last election with Trump and Biden, uh, it got discovered that Hunt, this this laptop, or a, I think it was about four or five laptops actually, that Hunter Biden had dropped off to an IT technician to get fixed. He had never come to collect them. The time to collect them had been over by a couple of years. And so the IT guy, after trying to contact Hunter numerous times, gave them to, I believe it was um, Fox News or some kind of outlet like that, they started publishing what was on this laptop, shocking, shocking revelations, including his work with the Ukraine oil company, including his connections with um, CCP officials, all in, in financial dealings that were really dodgy, um, seeing him with different kind of illegal substances. It was an outrage. And rather than telling people that this story was true, and rather than being honest with the public, Twitter, alongside many other social media companies, decided to suppress that information and label it Russian disinformation, which was a lie. And if they had been honest about this, it could have changed the outcome of the US election. So I don't know if you call this election tampering, uh, but it's definitely public manipulation and it is disgusting that they've been allowed to get away with this and lawsuits haven't been filed yet. Yeah, and look, I, I look through this this latest Twitter files. This is Twitter files number 19 and it's by Matt Taibbi. And, you know, you go through it and the three that jump out at me, number, number 15, it... Uh, talks about how they're focusing on things that are driven driven a larger anti-vaccination narrative about the loss of rights and freedoms. We expect the vaccine passport to debate to continue as a key talking point, especially bridging the anti-vax community with the right wing media sphere. So what's that what that's saying? That I mean that is a uh, that's a that's a direct email from the uh, the Virality Project to Twitter. Um, this is how they talk to each other. And in this particular case, they're, talk- they're taking a political stance. They're talking about right-wing media spheres. Um, in point number 25, they talk about natural immunity being suppressed. Um, in point number 21, they talk about stopping people just asking questions. I mean, this is extraordinary. We're talking about we're not allowed to ask questions anymore. I remember that also being used very early on in our experience here in New Zealand, um, as if that's some sort of conspiratorial uh, way of conducting your life, just asking questions. How does that make us feel as journalists? Just just one source of truth. Just follow it. Just don't ask questions, because if you do, you're clearly a right-wing extremist. That's how they frame everything, isn't it? And you know what's so funny to me? I never even really knew much about left or right wing before getting um, heavily, like mainly involved helping my father in his kind of recent campaign within the last few years. And then obviously speaking out a lot myself, I've started to kind of see what people mean. But I've only really probably been a lot more left leaning, I would say, or definitely a, a very, very um, like kind of really loose liberal, you know, just do whatever you want, really relaxed. 
And you were very much a left winger up until all of this happened. And so they just label people right wing extremism. Now, if you just say things like, oh, I think the nuclear family is good, which is a mum, a dad and kids. Apparently you're a right wing extremist if you, and you don't even know it. I find it really interesting because, you know, when all this madness started, I remember it only took about there was a period of about three months where my whole my whole worldview completely turned around because suddenly you're you're talking about things like, uh, well, you, you're just suddenly you find yourself on the other side of the spectrum, like like you were just pointing out, you know, one of the stories which has just come out in the last couple of days that would be called disinformation, according to the Virality Project, is the story about the German health minister. He's come out recently on national television to say that the COVID-19 vaccines can cause permanent disabilities. Um, it's extraordinary. This is a guy who is in charge of his country's health response to all of this. And if the Virality Project and our Disinformation Project and everybody else who's, who's all these fact checkers around the world uh, are to be have their way, then this health minister would be silenced right now. And you read some of these quotes that this guy is talking about. Um, he was asked, what do you say to those who've been affected by vaccine injuries? And his reply was, what's happened to these people is absolutely dismaying and every single case is one too many. I honestly feel very sorry for these people. There are severe disabilities and some of them will be permanent. This is the kind of this is the kind of information that we're going to suppress. That's incredible. My heart just breaks for any family that has been affected by this because, I mean, this German health minister was called Germany's Fauci. You know, so for Germany's Fauci to turn around and say, I'm sorry, uh, and what we did was wrong, that is huge. But what's even worse is the suppression of this information that's still currently ongoing here in New Zealand. Because if something is going to affect your family, you deserve the right to know. And my stance on all of this has been, um, I've always been very pro all vaccinations. It's not something I've ever looked into in the past. It's not something I've ever been concerned about. And when all of this came out, the only thing that made me wait was I just said I wanted time because I was worried about any health risks. I just really wanted time. And at the talk that time, there was talk of fertility and me and Jacob really want to have a family at some point. So that was a really sore point for me where I was like, I'm just going to wait because I just want to make sure that I protect my ability to have a family in the future if there is anything in this that people aren't told about or if there's any reaction in the future because you're never going to know down the line if this product is brand new what it could possibly result in and so I just feel really devastated for these families that could have had options that could have been told about the risks and made an informed decision and at least then they would have felt some sort of I guess peace or at least justification over what has happened but when we had our health minister our prime minister every tv station host telling people it's safe it's effective it's safe and it's effective and neither of those things were actually true the you have caused damage on these poor poor people that they've now got to live with potentially for the rest of their lives and you see people online saying just move on it's not a big deal and I'm like, of course it's not a big deal for you because you haven't been in and out of hospital. You haven't lost someone that you care about. So to you, of course you should move on. But to other people that have seen the damage and the hurt that this has caused, 
the situation is far greater. And even financially, the system is far greater. We touched at the very beginning of this show on what was happening in France and on how they were unable now to afford their pensioners. They were going to have to raise the pension age. Um, They're running out of money. They spent $454 billion dollars. And that's, sorry, not even dollars, that's billion euros. So that's nearly a trillion New Zealand dollars on their COVID measures. And then you think about it and you go, for what exactly? And based on what information? And if information wasn't suppressed here, what would that mean for the future of France's healthcare and for their financial options as well? How much better off would that country be if we actually had the right information given to us at the right time, or sorry, given to them at the right time. So it's far more wider reaching than just simply this one issue. And that's the problem when it comes to censorship. And it's something that's ongoing here in New Zealand. We've seen our, our um, what was she special? She's not special forces. She's um, secret service or something like that, isn't she? The lady with the, the curl at the front. <laughs> She looks like Mr. Is it Dr. Evil? Is it the the person from Dr. Evil or something that had the wee swirl? She was on one of those uh, Austin Power movies, I'm sure of it. Yes, you're right. It was Austin Powers and he's like, one million dollars. And you're kind of thinking, that's not that much to overthrow the world. But you know, you you have personally you've you've come up against this yourself. You know, as you say, this is not just a vaccine issue. This is this this goes across any issue that we're dealing with right now that the the government pushes um on us we've been seeing um we've been seeing the same sort of discussions and the the same sort of lack of transparency on discussions over things like co-governance for instance and and three waters and so on and you personally i this is one of the reasons what that one of the things that amazes me about you is that you're just one person who got on a Facebook page and um, Facebook Live and you showed people what was actually going on at Parliament during the protests. Uh, people could watch for themselves and see what was going on. And yes, you were you were commentating on it, but you you couldn't edit the um, the the visuals at all. Yet this is what you've come up against. The disinformation project here in New Zealand, which is the same sort of thing as this virality project that, that we're talking about, but the virality project is perhaps on steroids. Um, yeah. What's been your experience with that and what, what have you seen? Me and my fiancé Jacob laugh about this so often because <laughs> I'm sitting there on the couch, you know, and I've got my tiny little fluffy dog and we're just, you know, we're just talking back and forth about the craziness of these last few years. And we're like, in what planet would you have expected, like, little old me just kind of like, you know, I'd just go out to town partying and just have my easy fun life and then I start talking out online about things that I think are, you know, a fundamental breach of our human rights and that kind of blows up and next minute we're pretty much labelled domestic terrorists. I guess that's that's what you get called for just asking questions, right? For just asking questions. And it's not like I've gone out of my way to do anything remotely considered harmful to anybody. It's like, yeah, I've got political opinions that I share. And I'm also really open to people talking with me and changing my mind on my opinions. But I want to be able to talk freely and I want other people to come and talk with me freely. And I don't think that we should be silencing people that we disagree with. And it's like, I might block someone from my Facebook page if they're abusing me, but I don't want them to be taken off Facebook. I would never go and, you know, try and report all their accounts for the horrible things that they do, because it's like, they have their right to freedom of speech as much as I have my right. However, 
that doesn't go both ways. You know, you won't find that on the other side. They don't want you to even have a voice. Um, I saw a lady posting about me the other day and she goes, Facebook and Twitter, when will you take this like white supremacist off all your platforms? She shouldn't be heard. And I think that's exactly the problem. You A, are completely false about me, but B, you want me completely removed because you don't think that people you disagree with should be allowed to have a discussion that you don't like. And that's fundamentally the problem here in New Zealand. And it's getting worse with these government agencies because what's happening is the kind of Marxist ideology and a member of our team, Phil, does a wonderful report called the Intel Report and he deep dives into some of the members of the Disinformation Project. He's going to be doing other agencies as well. He's ex-Special Forces um, and he worked in intelligence with anti-human trafficking over in Thailand. A phenomenal guy, really, really intelligent and just really great to listen to and get educated from. And he kind of breaks down the Marxist ideology that really drives a lot of these groups and they've kind of infiltrated slowly into the army, infiltrated slowly into the police, and they take little steps at a time so people don't realise that fundamentally they are being driven by Marxism. So they want to tear down the family unit. They want to make sure you don't have like private enterprise. It's all of these things that are really beneficial, especially to families and to individuals for them to grow as humans. That's fundamentally what they want to take away. And you can see that happening. They want to split parents away from their children. And you see that happening with the education system. And we're not, I'm, I'm concerned that in the future, we're not going to be allowed to talk about these things because they would have infiltrated these groups to such an extent that simple disagreement is now disinformation. And I believe we're seeing that play out in reality already. And the reason that we're seeing that playing out in reality is because when you when you when you allow people to do like what you're you're talking about there, that lady who was just asking questions of you, but she's allowed to ask questions because she's on the right side of the spectrum. <laughs> well, she's on the left hand side, which is the right side at the moment or something like that. Anyway, it's that self-censorship which actually begins to happen, isn't it? It's, you know, we 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 end up maybe not speaking out because we're worried about the reaction. And I don't think that's the sign of a, a healthy society if that's where we get to. No, and I've never actually met a right-wing extremist. Um, not that I know of. I've never actually talked with someone that's really extreme on the right. Like, I've never met anyone that doesn't want women to be able to vote. I've never met anyone, and I'm guessing that's far-right extremism. I don't actually know. I find it really incredible that they can just pull out all of these. But then, you know, what all I think that we ask, or I would ask in that situation, is that we actually get the opportunity to debate it. But unfortunately, when these those kinds of accusations are thrown around, you know, or you don't actually get to debate it, the whole point of those accusations is to just silence you and, and silence the argument. It's a real problem, I think, with mainstream media as well. And you'll be able to talk about this, actually, how they approach stories, because you used to work uh, in mainstream media, didn't you, with the Australian Associated Press. Well, how about you break down for people how they go about pulling a story, how they go about writing it, putting it out to the public? Like, What's that process like? Is it fundamentally based in um, accuracy or what does that look like? Yeah, I, when I worked with when I worked with the Australian Associated Press, I worked on on there as a sub editor and uh, a casual time sub-editor and I worked in the Sydney office um, there and and basically my job consisted of taking stories that had come from other wire services around the world. Now wire services are those those agencies 
who have a whole lot of journalists and they send them out and they write stories and then they they put them out on the wire service and these these stories get picked up by the major newspapers so the new york times the uh, the guardian in England or um, here in New Zealand, the New Zealand Herald, you look at the bottom of the stories and you'll see AP or AFP or AAP or Reuters is another one as well. AP, of course, is the American version. That's the Associated Press. Um, AFP is the French version. That's Agence Francaise Press, I believe. Um, we shared offices with them at the Australian Associated Press and that's the, the Australian version. And then, of course, there's Reuters as well. And so my job at that time was actually to sit there at this computer and take stories from Reuters and AP and AFP. And I would basically rewrite those stories for the Australian and New Zealand uh, audience. And then we would put them out under the name... Um, uh, under the name AAP and that's the uh, the abbreviation that you will see at the end of a lot of news stories and say the New Zealand Herald or on stuff or something like that at the bottom of the story it'll be attributed to wire services so that's how a lot of these stories actually all sound very very similar because they are similar they came they come from one of about three or four or five organizations and then they get dis dispersed all around the world and then just sort of made to sound a little bit more local by the local editors. And so to bring it back to the viral virality project, that's, that's exactly um, how it is happening. It is sounding all the same because it is all the same. Right. This has been The Chantel Show. You've been speaking with Chantel, with our wonderful producer, Alistair, and with Angela, live from the Netherlands. We really appreciate the time you've given us today. hope you found a bit of information in there that was useful and feel a bit more informed for the week to come. We look forward to talking to you next week. We're going to be bringing you a whole lot of new information and new stories from all around the world that the media here just don't seem to be talking about. If you have any feedback for us or topics you want us to cover, you can email us inbox at realitycheck.radio. You can also sign up to see a lot of the videos that I create personally and my team over at operationpeople.com. This has been the Chantal Baker Show, and this is Reality Check Radio. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told that it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. So get ready. Get ready for RCR, Reality Check Radio, soon.